Let's uh, welcome in Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. He is here to run down the latest COVID headlines as we head into the weekend. Doctor, good afternoon and happy Friday. Happy Friday. Always great to open to Pantera. That was awesome. We had to do that for you, Doctor. The Rock Doc, Dr. Chakrabarty, that was by your request. So, uh, yes, we got that on for you. (laughs) All right, listen, we're going to start with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, on this Friday afternoon. There's a report in the New York Times, Dr. Chakrabarty, that uh, they are about to greenlight a a pediatric vaccine for those ages 5 to 11 uh, by the end of day, by the end of uh, today, we're hearing. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, they might have already done it, uh, but uh, I could be wrong by a couple of hours. But the point is, yeah, that's what's expected to happen. We have some details from their uh, discussion that happened earlier this week. Uh, 17 of the uh, people on the board devoted yes, zero no, and there was one abstention. So I think that uh, uh, what they're, it's important to note is that they are approving it. They feel that it's safe enough to be used and is effective, but they did stop short of saying that, uh, about mandating it, which I, which I think is very uh, interesting and important. All right, let's talk about the efficacy as well, because we're hearing from the uh, data from Pfizer has been released and that the they're claiming their vaccine is 91% effective. Yeah, so, so yeah, the, the thing about it is that it makes sense, right? That when you look at the uh, way the vaccine works in adults, uh, especially younger adults, it works well. It works even better in adolescents, so it's not surprising we see this. We have to be careful because the, the number of uh, children in the trial uh, was not as large as you saw in the adolescents or the adults, so that's, that's important to uh, keep in mind. But the point is that it works. We also have to measure that, though, with the fact that kids have a very low risk of severe disease. So these things have to all be balanced in our own personal risk calculations. Yeah. How concerning is that about the sample size? If memory serves, it was around 26, 2800 kids uh, for this uh, test. That's right. And I think this is a concern that has to be uh, on the forefront. And we have to remember that, you know, major side effects, uh, the most the ones that are going to happen generally happen uh, within the first uh, a couple of months of uh, trial or the, the initiation of the intervention. But, you know, something like myocarditis, that didn't come up until later in the post-marketing analysis. And that's what's going to be very important to watch. It's a very small risk that we saw, mainly in uh, young uh, boys and men. But it's something that when you have a risk, a very small risk of severe disease, you have to kind of balance those two. And that's what I think I'll be looking out for in in the coming months. Let me ask you as well, I'm just uh, reading this uh, report uh, from the Times, uh, Daily Mail also reporting on this, uh, saying that uh, parents in the U.S. split roughly 50-50 over vaccinating their uh, children because kids rarely get severely ill uh, from COVID and uh, make up less than 0.1% of all COVID deaths in the U.S. So what would you say, Dr. Chakrabarty, to uh, parents who have got some concerns about giving this vaccine to their kids? I think it's always important for us to ask questions about the vaccine. If you have concerns, bring them up with a trusted healthcare provider. I make that clear to all of the people I talk to. I don't want anybody to feel alienated because they have some kind of doubt. And I think that's that's natural. This is a very good argument, the, the fact that uh, children definitely uh, uh, don't uh, tend to get severely ill. There are certain children that have uh, characteristics such as obesity, very bad chronic respiratory, and neurological issues. These were the children that we found in a Canadian study that had the highest risk. So I think it's important with all of this in mind, this can now be something that is a uh, a risk assessment that a family can do uh, all together and make it it, because the risk assessment here is different than the risk assessment was for the vaccine for adults, especially at the height of the pandemic here in, uh, in Canada. Just finally, now that this is uh, or is about to be a green lit by the FDA in the U.S., what do you think that means for us here in Canada, Health Canada, NACI, when it comes to uh, Pfizer and the pediatric vaccine? 
I, I uh, don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect Canada will follow uh, uh, fairly soon as well. And, uh, you know, the, the nitty-gritty of it, the recommendations, that's uh, uh, to be seen, but I expect them to uh, approve it as well. Joined on the line by Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, running down some of the latest COVID headlines ahead of the weekend. Also, doctor, I wanted to talk about uh, just this a tragic story out of uh, Oro Medente, a father of three, age 75, uh, passing away after COVID spread through a uh, hockey league uh, there. Uh, this despite the fact that uh, he was uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, it's obviously got a lot of people uh, concerned and uh, worried about the efficacy of the uh, vaccines and just how cautious we need to be, even if we are fully vaxxed. Yeah, and you know, hearing this story, obviously this uh, pulls heartstrings, and my condolences go to um, uh, his family. Uh, you know, we, we look at the situation, uh, like, like we have uh, always been told, the vaccine is not 100% effective, so that's one thing to consider. The other thing is, if you look at the, aside from the death, the majority of the people who got COVID in that situation, you know, they, they had a bad flu and they were in bed for a couple of days. And I think that's what happens with influenza and other respiratory viruses. Unfortunately, even pre-COVID, we would see the occasional person come in, even when vaccinated, with a severe respiratory illness, usually influenza, and they would have uh, complications like a, like a stroke or a heart attack, which we saw. Either way, you know, it, it's, it, nobody wants to hear this, but I think overall we have to remember that these situations, they obviously do um, uh, feel bad when we hear them, but it is what happens with respiratory viruses. The vaccines aren't perfect. And overall, though, you still look at it, the vaccine works very well to uh, protect against severe disease. Yeah, I'm with you. Just such a, a tragic uh, story. And just how risky are activities still, like rec hockey, uh, going to the gym as well? You know, where you are uh, amongst others, you're breathing uh, heavily, you're perspiring, uh, you're exercising. Are those activities, do you think, those sports, are they still overly uh, risky, even if you're fully vaccinated? I, I think the thing is that uh, nothing is going to be zero risk. We know that. We know that the vaccine doesn't 100% take away the risk. And that's why I think now that we're in a situation where we have so many people with immunity, whether it's from the vaccine or from being exposed to COVID, we can now make these decisions based on your own personal risk assessment. Here's a question I ask people. Would you have gone to a wedding, an indoor wedding, in the wintertime in 2018? Many people would say yes to that. And I think that uh, knowing that, I think the big thing to remember is that that's a risk assessment because you could get a respiratory virus there. So the long and short of it is I think that we all have to uh, consider these, uh, what you're comfortable with going forward. Nothing's going to be zero risk, but it sure is uh, greatly reduced with vaccination. Just finally, is this a story, is it a bit of a cautionary tale for all of us? And you mentioned a risk assessment, risk management, that even if you are fully vaccinated, you need to bear in mind that uh, you are not uh, invincible? I, I think so. I, I think that's it's important to know. But all, at the same time also is that the risk now that we have, especially as the amount of COVID in the community starts to uh, go down, it's not going to be something that's on the forefront of all of our consciousness in, in the future. So, of course, none of us are uh, invincible. It's important to get your regular checkups from your doctor, your age-appropriate screenings, stay healthy, eat healthy, exercise. These are all the things that we should be doing anyway. And while COVID does add an element to that, it's something that I think uh, applies even once COVID's gone. All right, just finally, Dr. Sharkabardi, wanted to discuss with you uh, this week here on this uh, Friday. You mentioned the caseload is uh, going down. And a lot of people are asking this question, uh, when does this become an endemic? We're in the midst of a global pandemic, we know, but everybody's wanting to know, where is the end? When does this all end? And do we have like a formal definition? Uh, do we know exactly when the pandemic will become an endemic? 
Yeah, this is actually a, a tough one because there, there's a lot of different elements to it, some of which is objective, some of which is also subjective. I think, first of all, endemic, uh, if uh, you guys have uh, heard that term, the long and short of it is it's kind of low-level, relatively stable uh, transmission in the background, which occasionally can have spikes for example, in the wintertime. And different parts of the world will go into that stage uh, at a later time. And this comes from a, a certain proportion, large proportion with COVID, having immunity. And I think that, for example, in Ontario, it's possible that we're in the early stages of that. We won't know until we actually see the pattern and look back over several months. But I think that the one thing is important to note is that this is not going to be something, number one, that's the same all the way around the world. And number two, that happens suddenly. It's going to be more of a dimmer switch rather than an on-off switch. And I think that in Canada, we can uh, uh, start to see this in the coming months. But it's something that, uh, uh, you know, epidemiologists is going to take, uh, uh, politicians, I guess, too, but uh, also people who study this type of um, uh, interaction with viruses to make that definition. But it'll be a slow process that is coming. All right. An endemic, that doesn't necessarily mean that... COVID has ended, that it's over, that uh, COVID uh, we will still live with, it'll still uh, be with us in one form or another? That's exactly right. It, it's going to be part of the respiratory virus milieu that we already have in the background. We have influenza, para-influenza, uh, other coronaviruses. These are there, and I think it's going to become part of that. And I think that's just one other thing that we have to consider in the diagnosis. But in terms of looking forward a couple of years, I think that we're going to be living our lives uh, learning something uh, from this uh, pandemic, hopefully being prepared for if there's a next one, and also things like indoor air quality. So we're going to lead this learning something, but life is going to go back to what it was before, uh, and it's just going to take some time. All right. Just uh, finally, when we look at the pandemic becoming an endemic, is there one indicator or a couple of indicators, sorry, that you can point to that the rest of us should be looking at? Is it caseload? Is it hospitalizations? Is it something else? It's actually kind of all of those, but I think one of the ones that they often use strictly in the definition is the R value. And the R value is something that we've all heard of in the last uh, year. It's something that uh, people often graph. And roughly, when you're in an endemic situation, the R stays close to one. You can have periods where the, that, that uh, will go up. It might go down even more. But the point is it stays relatively stable, which means that when one person gets infected, you're not infecting more than one person. In other words, it doesn't grow. It kind of stays stable. It undulates. Yeah, that R factor is for replication, the replication factor? That's exactly right. So, for example, if an R of 2 would mean, on average, every person that gets infected is infecting two other people. And you can see how that can get uh, uh, exponential, uh, literally, very quickly. All right, Doctor, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much, and enjoy the Halloween weekend. You guys got it. Take care. All right, Dr. Suman Chakrabarti with us. And we're back after this break here on Global News Radio. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.